The Letter. Written and directed by Daniel Rose Tyson. Episode 3. Dear Lopez, I guess it's a measure of how detached I was from reality at the time of your passing that after a close 30-year friendship full of ups and downs and reproachments, I thought I could just carry on as normal with what was an absolute mess of a life I was leading that summer. I put you in the same bracket as all the other bereavements I had to deal with during that strange 14-month period between April 2008 and June 2009 that I'd shown little inclination to deal with. I thought that if I'd been able to function with those ghosts that I carried like a bag full of awful Iceland's Chinese takeaway meals, I could do so with yours. I was wrong about you. I was wrong about all of them. But especially you. I should have stopped. But you know what I was like. Back in those days, every time something went wrong, and it often did, I wouldn't even stop to dust myself down. I just emerged from the wreckage and stagger onto the next disaster, usually just around the corner, dazed and confused, slower too, but failing to heed whatever the latest lessons had been. In fact, I almost revelled in them. I'm a quiet guy. Tragedies were often the only thing that made me feel alive. After my parents had passed away, I'd eventually managed to enjoy some stability and career success, most of it owed to the calmness our mutual childhood friend brought to my life when I hooked up with her. She had the large skull most of my former partners seemed to have. She had a car too. I preferred the oversized skull to the car. For several years, she effectively drove me around everywhere as we moved to the countryside. I almost found the bereavements easier than the countryside. People thought I had it cushy, but it was never easy for me being in that car with her, especially in the sticks. I never wanted to learn how to drive. I still don't. Like my dad before me, cars hold no interest for me. She was a brilliant driver, but I'm from the 70s. It made me feel like I was dating a woman that was taller than me. Give me one memory of your friend Lopez that would sum up for our listeners the kind of guy that he was. Christmas 2000, the first one without my mum. All my family got together, but I decided to stay at home on my own. I think I would have found it uh, difficult seeing an empty chair where my mum should have been. Late afternoon and I'm already questioning my decision when the doorbell rings. It was Lopez. He'd ended up paying £20 to take a cab to come and be with me on Christmas Day. I never asked him to. That's who he was. I'm sure that's something you'd have done for him. I certainly like to think I would, but, you know, £20 has always been a lot for me in any era. (laughs) Ours was a friendship that began right at the start of the 80s, the era whose music continued to obsess us right into our 30s. My dad had never let me have the short back and sides hair as a kid that every other boy in my class seemed to have. Neither had your dad. That's why I was always able to remember my first ever meeting with you so clearly. It was at the Spanish consulate school in Stockwell, back in October 1980. I was eight. You were about to turn nine. I was immediately struck how you were the first boy I'd encountered in a long time, with the same outdated hairstyle as mine. You looked like a girl. I looked like a girl. We both looked like girls, and we knew it, and that was how our beautiful, often stormy, near-30-year friendship began. 
Lopez was, according to you, the only friend you were never uncomfortable with coming over to Mayflower because he was the only one who lived like you and your family did. He knew what living in a slum was like. He knew all about sharing bathrooms with strangers. I didn't have to lie to him when he came around. It was a friendship built on outdated hairstyles, lots of coffee and communal bathrooms. That's what it was. Both our lives had imploded in late August 2008. I was wrestling with a fallout from the end of my relationship with our childhood friend, whose demise I'd largely been responsible for, and spiralling towards the first of two exceptionally bad periods in my life, which would finally bring through the changes I'd long resisted. You, meanwhile, had been admitted into hospital with a hideously swollen leg, as the cancer, we didn't know it was cancer at the time, took a hold. I remember in those early weeks of your treatment, they positioned this terminally ill patient in front of you in the oncology ward. The man looked about 80. He had wispy, golem-like hair and the emaciated frame normally associated with concentration camp prisoners, and yet he was in possession of some of the most beautiful dentition I've ever seen on anyone, which probably meant the poor soul was no more than 50. I was shocked, both by the man's appearance and that the hospital would put him in front of you. It made no sense to have two guys at the opposite ends of their battle with cancer located opposite each other. What good did it do you mentally to see that so early in your fight? I'm no fan of murals, but they should have placed a mural in front of you full of upbeat faces rather than have you looking at this poor guy all day. You were universally loved by all of your friends. Whilst many of us would have fallouts and disputes that took a while to resolve, you rarely had that with anyone. Except me. I made a point of falling out with everyone after my parents passed away. If I suddenly remembered there was someone I'd forgotten to fall out with, then I'd make sure I ticked them off the list too. You, great friend that you were, forgave me, more than once. Your illness got caught up in a lot of the rubbish I was struggling to deal with at the time. You were dying, and I was breaking. I could not be the friend you needed me to be, and there were times when, much to my shame... I disappeared. I was often there at your bedside, but not in the way you needed me to be. You deserved better. I went to your place in Norbury one night after you'd finished your latest bout of chemo. I hadn't seen you in three weeks as I was living out of London again. The place reeked of all the medicine you were on. It smelt like a hospital. Maybe it's where my head was at the time, but from that night on, I just didn't see this turning out well. You were the first guy I told about L.A. This letter has me wondering for the first time if I only told you because in my mind I knew you weren't going to pull through and with me not being sure about her, I figured if it didn't work out you'd be taking my secret with you to the grave. To say it didn't work out too well with L.A. is an understatement. Both she and I did a good job of wrecking my life. I wasn't going anywhere. I could understand her walking away. Still... Just a bit more support would have been good. You know, particularly considering the fact she hammered a few of those final nails in herself. Once you got your own place, you never really enjoyed going home. You were as lonely as I find myself now. Unlike me, though, most of the time, you were out partying, sinking ten pints, then grabbing yourself some fast food on your way home. Takeaway owners knew you by name which is extraordinary when you'd only been living in Norbury for less than two years. That wasn't a good sign. When the sickness came for you, 
Perhaps the way you were living meant your body wasn't as well equipped to battle it as it might have been. Your mum flew back to London to be with you, convinced, as any other mother should be, that her older son would win his fight. You know, back in the day, she and I had our differences, but she was a real star for you when you got sick. We have coffee whenever she's in London. She talks about you and ends up upsetting herself when she does. I don't like to see that. I'm a better comforter in Spanish than I am in English. There's something about the Spanish language that makes me less nasal. Having said that, I remember once accidentally rubbing the back of her bra strap as I consoled her on one occasion. I suspect that may have been a consequence of having had too many girlfriends. I went away and took a long, hard look at my comforting technique after that. I still go to the same cafe we used to go to in South Lambeth Road, sitting at the same table we used to sit at, the toilet table, where you'd hang your umbrella off the back of the chair opposite me if there was even the slightest hint of rain, still served by some of the waiters you often clash with. Your mum often sits there, in your chair. I don't think she knows that was your seat, and I never tell her. One April morning, as the end neared, we took a long walk up towards Thornton Heathway. You'd gotten into the habit of taking these long walks to break up the boredom of your everyday routine since getting sick. That morning, you talked for the first time of no longer being around a year on from that walk, because you could sense whatever was inside you, as you put it, wasn't going away. I remember you looking at me, and we didn't need to say anything. You knew I'd been thinking the same. But to hear you acknowledging it yourself was something I struggled with. Of all the awkward silences I've endured, and there have been hundreds in my life, that may have been the hardest. Your house got sold. I think it took eight or nine months in all. Your younger brother worked hard to get it into shape. He moved into the house after you passed away, away from his family, to do that for you. I think that was his way of dealing with losing you. I didn't quite look out for your brother like I should have. How could I? I was a mess most of the time. He and I seem to have been involved in some bizarre head-to-head over the years as to who could lose more people, and I was hardly best placed to advise him when I was living in a hotel and making all the wrong choices while the guy had a mortgage and kids. He would have been right not to listen to me. I tried not to think about you too much when I was in room 11. I tried not to think too much full stop in room 11. But I made a conscious decision once I saw what that place was doing to me to especially not think about you. Now you were able for the most part to shut down your grief for Lopez quite ruthlessly. But there were moments that caught you unawares. The first anniversary of his passing, your aunt and you went to the grave. You didn't want to go, but you didn't want your aunt to be there on her own. She gave it a good clean and you changed all the flowers. But then you write that when she started talking to Lopez, you experienced what was then a rare wobbly moment. Yeah. It shook you. What were you afraid of? I knew I wasn't strong enough to deal with that, not at that point. I hoped if I had to deal with it, if it had to happen at all, that it would be at a time when I was better. Is it fair to say you were putting everything into your relationship at the time? That's a fair comment. That relationship, as wrong as it was, that was my way out, I hoped, from all the rubbish. I remember the young Spanish doctor, the one who took over your case at the end. I remember his hands shaking as he broke the news to you that day that you were going to die. Six months at most they gave you, if you took this new medication, 
which might give you enough time to sort out your affairs. After the doctor broke the news, you retreated deep into yourself. I don't think myself or any of your friends that were there will ever forget the haunted look in your, by then, yellowed eyes as the cancer got into your liver. You lasted five days. I always thought you were too much of a mummy's boy, more so than even me. But the way you faced down what was happening to you at the end blew that right out of the water. Your courage and your dignity were just absolutely humbling, never more so than when you received that news. Daniel, this week we're talking about the loss of your great childhood friend Lopez. This was, in spite of your fragile state, the one bereavement you were ready for. Yeah, I was ready for the actual passing. Beyond that, I had no idea how to grieve. It was just get ready for the big moment and then just carry on as best I could. By the end of 2009, you write, I knew something was wrong when I realised that in the last 12 months I had lost more people than I had sold pieces of writing. To be honest, that could still be applied today, except I'd only have to lose a couple of people now. Even so, let's take a look at this run of bereavements and curious incidents from 2008 onwards. Okay. The fat stranger dead in his car outside Victoria Coach Station, surrounded by armed police, your uncle in Spain disappearing. New Year's Day 2009, your aunt in Spain dies, incidents providing a strange backdrop to your friend's illness and your own fall. And in, among all of this, was your oldest uncle dying. And that last loss gave you the grounding for losing Lopez. That was the one. Up until then, all the losses had been abrupt or strange or involved sudden phone calls from Spain. My uncle was the first one that I had actual time to prepare for. I sat with him on his last night. I had time to think about it. I learned what it was like to be with someone in their final hours holding their hand. You learned how to say goodbye. Which is not an easy thing. But I told my uncle everything I needed to tell him. The things you'd never had a chance to tell your parents. Yeah, and I felt the benefit of that. I knew that I had to make sure I did that with Lopez. I needed him to know what he had meant to me personally. And all of this was uppermost in your mind the following summer when it all came to its end? I knew what I wanted to say, what I had to say. Forgive me for saying so, but you do talk like you've swallowed some bereavement for dummies manual. That's a book idea right there. You often criticise me with some justification for having no long-term thinking. I've tried to change that. I try to think about the impact the decisions I might make have a year from now. Every day, I set aside 10 minutes, for instance, to practice writing left-handed in case I ever lose the use of my right arm at some point. My left-handed writing's coming along nicely. I think I'd cope losing my right arm. Of course, it's a little easier for me as often in my life I've pretended to be left-handed to make myself appear more intriguing. Back in the days before chip and pin, I had my card confiscated in a store after attempting to sign my name left-handed twice and arousing the suspicions of the cashier when my signature failed to match what was on the card. If you hadn't gotten sick, I think I would have left LA before she hurt me. But I'd become too weak by then. Those relentless bereavements had done something to me. In fairness to her, me losing you kept her from leaving me sooner too. Essentially, we'd stay together because of you. It took me too long to see that. She'd said that right at the end. I was tired of all those losses. I wanted a win, and in choosing to fight for her, 
I probably chose the hardest battle of all. Honestly, Lopez, I've never tried harder to make something work than I did with L.A. For so long, the nagging possibility that I might have to confront your loss alone frightened me. The truth is, though, I could never talk to her about you. It wasn't something she could deal with. So I was alone with it all along. It's probable that I'd been looking for her to save me from everything, and I got that badly wrong. And we're back. Daniel Ruiz Tyson, under-the-radar podcaster and South London latte ponce, is still with me, and this week we're discussing his lifelong friend Lopez, who passed away four summers ago. Daniel, was this the loss that triggered the change? Well, no, actually. I think it was uh, one of many things, you know, that pushed me towards that change or the attempt to push through that change. But no one thing changed me. I don't learn lessons that easily. Losing a friend, of course, uh, it's, you know, it's different to losing a parent. It rams home your mortality. For a while, my hypochondria did the impossible and cranked up a notch. I don't think Lopez was in the ground yet, and I'd managed to wangle my way into hospitals for all manner of scans. But your ex-partner said, did she not, that losing Lopez changed you? She did say that. Others said that too, but... What I'm saying, what I personally feel, is that I change because of many things. I changed ultimately because I had to. I don't think it was an organic change. It was a change that came about from listening to those closest to me. It was a change forged in hospital rooms, talking to professionals. It was clinical. It was slow. It was painful. You made a conscious effort to change? Yeah, It wasn't something I sought. I just realised finally that there was no way of moving forward without it. Dealing with what happened to Lopez was a big part of that, but it wasn't all of it. Maybe it should have been, but I'd made a mess of things before he got sick. It would be wrong for me to hide behind his sickness. That, that was not the catalyst. I remember your final hours seeing you move about repeatedly in your hospital bed as your discomfort with the hiccups that plagued your final days tortured you. I recall how when I put you back into your bed after you tried to wander off somewhere, your hospital gown rode up, giving me my first glimpse of your stomach. I saw all the scars and incisions. I was horrified. I thought, my God, what have they done to you, my friend? I saw the state of your swollen leg too, where the lymphoma had originally taken hold. Even if you'd survived, you had been butchered. Your confidence would have been severely dented when it came to finding the wife you probably needed more than me. That's not to discount the possibility you might have been able to form a bond with one of your nurses. Nurses have a history of falling for their patients, though I've got to say, none of the ones that looked after you really stood out. You were unlucky on that front too. Still, Personally, I think getting together with a nurse that cared for you makes getting comfortable with a partner a lot easier in that a nurse dresses you and bathes you. They see you at your lowest ebb. So if they want a relationship with you, you don't have to worry too much about how good a shape you might be in. They know what to expect already. Though while she might have seen all of you in hospital, you're not seeing anything of her until the dating stage. It's a risk. If and when you do get to the big reveal and don't like what you see, she's going to say, hang on, pal, look at the state you were in when I was bathing you every night. I didn't have to fall in love with you. You'd feel indebted to her. It's like meeting a a prospective partner in a pool. 
When you've got the kind of body hair coverage of the standard Mediterranean man, the easiest way to get around such an issue might be to meet women in the pool or sea. The aquatic meeting means much of the work would be done. Straight away, you'd have seen a great deal of one another's bodies. The woman would already have seen you topless. By being in that water, you are in many ways as close as you can be to being in the bedroom. You're not springing any unwanted surprises on each other. I've got a dental brace now after one too many nose and facial injuries. It's the kind of ridiculous late-in-life nonsense my dad would have done. Had you pulled through and not hooked up with any of your nurses, I figure with my brace and your scarring, we might as well have got a place together. I don't think we'd have to set any house rules about when we could bring women back. I think it's fair to assume things would have been quiet on that front. Do you think Lopez was happy and fulfilled? No, certainly not fulfilled. Not when you die at 37. But I try not to think about that. I can check those thoughts. That's one of the changes? No, I just, uh, you know, I said I wouldn't think too hard about losing him until I was strong enough to deal with it. But either way, I remember when I lost my mum, I gave myself a hard time. Every day, every night, regardless of what state I was in, I was determined I wouldn't do that with Lopez. When I was finally strong enough to stop and think about him some years later, I thought about instead what he had brought to my life, what he had brought to all our lives. All of us who lost him had been lucky to know him. That's what I thought about. You were able to tell him you loved him at the end. I was. And you know what? As bad as things got afterwards, I always had that. What did he say? It was a kind of rush job by then. Mm. A few of us had gone there that day since in the end was close. But no way did we think it would end that day. Right. By the afternoon, I realised I was running out of time, so I just got it out. He wasn't quite with it by then. He just said, oh. I'd like to have done it better, but you know, at the same time, I didn't want to spook the guy. In almost 30 years of knowing him, we'd never even come close to that kind of conversation. It might have even been too much for him. But was it enough for you? Yeah. It helped you? It did. Your final moment is right up there with the time I found my mum as the strangest split second of my life. I had made myself scarce as your friends and family gathered to say what some might have suspected would be their final farewells. But seeing most had gone, I decided to check in on you. Your aunt was looking for a nurse, saying your uncle who was at your bedside was concerned that your breathing was becoming laboured. Had I arrived seconds later, I wouldn't have seen what I saw. I could hear the strange breathing. I rushed to your side and I cradled your head as you took your last breath in front of your uncle and I saw single teardrops rolling down from each eye, despite the fact you were in a coma by then. We went from that first meeting looking like girls at the Spanish consulate school to this. I've never been able to get my head around that. I still remember sitting there alongside your body, your uncle and me, like it was an everyday thing, when I knew as a moment it was far from normal. It must have been an hour at least before they came and took you away. I remember that no longer in pain, you seemed to suddenly look so much younger than your 37 years. My white converse, all the rage that summer, were too clean and bright for the moment. I was also wearing, unusually for me, a bright green top. Much to my surprise, green really worked for me. I had no idea until that afternoon in the hospital. People like Mickey Boyd kept telling me it was my colour. I'm telling you now, Dan. Green's your colour. You look terrific. 
I didn't look good there at your bedside. Well, I did look good. It just didn't look good that I looked good in a hospital when you had just passed away. For a moment, as your uncle and I sat with your body in silence, I felt awkward. It looked like I was going somewhere afterwards, which I was, and I did. As a matter of fact, I went out and got smashed in one of your favourite haunts, the Chandos in Charing Cross Road. I haven't touched alcohol for three years now, and it would probably take another day like that to make me even consider going back to it. I headed back to SW8 that night, my head fuzzy with the alcohol, wondering how it was that I hadn't been more affected by what I'd experienced that day. That's probably the point when I should have stopped. I should have fixed myself up. Again, I didn't take that opportunity. I didn't know it then, but that failure to stop would set me on the road towards that unwanted epiphany in room 11, 18 months later. The attendance at your funeral was staggering. There were people from all walks of life, from all sorts of communities. I don't make friends easily. My funeral won't be able to match that. I probably need to undergo some radical transformation in my personality and start making at least one new long-term friend every month for the next 15 years before I'm ready to die. Otherwise, I'm looking at a shamefully small gathering. The obvious way to achieve this is to follow in my dad's footsteps and go to night school. I might even be looking at matching or even surpassing the 18 years he racked up. My life will be one perpetual enrolment. About your funeral... I'm sorry that I brought so much trouble with me. That was embarrassing. I just can't seem to get funerals right. The inappropriate go-faster striped goatee at my mum's service, leaving my dad's funeral in the back of an open-topped white sports car. Every time I looked up as I gave the eulogy, I'd catch sight of one of numerous ex-girlfriends present glaring at me, which amused my friends no end. There'd been a few overlaps in the chronology of partners, I didn't want any unfortunate crossovers confirmed at your funeral of all places. I feared the exes all getting together at the wake, looking to confirm long-held suspicions and establishing overlapping periods when I might have been living the duplicitous life that helped bring me down. Maybe one of them would have had a notebook, and with all of them gathered around, she would have begun to sketch out a timeline of what partners were with me at what point. I am ashamed of those days. I didn't want to be reminded that for so long after losing my mum, I had dealt with my grief in the wrong way. The last few years were remorselessly difficult. The recession pretty much gave us all a kick in. At one point, I almost bought a 16-piece smart price cutlery set in Asda for £1.32, and then I thought, no, I'm not there yet. I've not lost yet. If I win this, I'll never forget how far I fell. I'm glad I didn't buy that cutlery set. Slowly, I've managed to turn things around, having my best year since 2007. I'm still nowhere near where I was or where I should be, but finally, there seems to be some upward trajectory. I'm calmer these days, if not happier. My hair's short now. I didn't want to be one of these guys going into middle age with long hair. I'm pleased I stuck to that. Obviously, any sense of achievement that I'm not trying to hang on to my youth is undermined by the brace. I got through this with a lot of counselling. I read every Murakami book going and drank endless supplies of coffee. And I had my friends. As you know, we've both been lucky to have some great friends. 
Walk towards the sun, one of them told me in Christmas 2010, when I hit the lowest point. The sun will one day set upon your life again. I believe him. I can close my eyes now and allow myself to dream of living a, a brace-free life where there are slush puppy fountains on every corner and non-fragrance hand gel dispensers and buses where, just like the old days, there are only a handful of bells so you don't get morons pressing them after they've already been rung and in spite of the bus stopping sign being lit up. I was lucky to know you, Lopez. I know I will still be thinking of you on my last day on this planet, which may not be too far away, if I don't eliminate the Donna Kebab from my diet. You forgave me many things, when perhaps sometimes you should have made me work harder to gain those pardons. You were the kindest friend I ever knew. And like I told you that final hour in the hospital, I love you and I always will. Danny. In a US talk show host was played by Sarah Summeray and also featured Mickey Boyd with Daniel Ruiz Tyson as himself. The music is by Ignacio Lothano. For more news on the letter, visit the blog, theletterofficialblog.wordpress.com.